Good morning, Foundation Church. I like it. You guys are responsive. This is the kind of church service I grew up in. I am so honored to get to share some words this morning with you that the Holy Spirit has stirred in me for several weeks now. Today is a tough sermon, and I've entitled today's sermon, Living in the Tension. One of the most preeminent American theologians of the 1990s, Garth Brooks, once said, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs, just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care, because some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Now, certainly Garth has not necessarily plumbed the theological depths of this topic in reflecting on his old high school flame, but he has touched on a very deep subject that in his prayer not being answered, he has a greater appreciation for his wife. One of my favorite things that Ruth Bell Graham once said was that if God answered prayers all the time, she would have married the wrong man about seven times. Garth brings up a topic that is important to discuss in church circles as there can be some really bad theology circulating in regards to unanswered prayer and interacting with God's silence. If the Reverend Brooks doesn't speak to you, perhaps the Reverend Twain will. In Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, Huck describes his experience of unanswered prayer under the guidance of one of his mother figures, Miss Watson, the strict sister of his guardian, Widow Douglas. I'll do my best, Huck, for you. Then Miss Watson, she took me in the closet and prayed, but nothing came of it. She told me to pray every day, and whatever I asked for, I'd get it. But it wasn't so. I tried it. Once I got a fish line, but no hooks. And it weren't any good to me without no hooks. I tried for the hooks three or four times, but somehow I couldn't make it work. By and by, one day I asked Miss Watson to try for me, but she said I was a fool. She never told me why, and I couldn't make it out no way. I sat down one time back in the woods and had a long think about it. Nope, says I to myself, there ain't nothing the secular world has been discussing unanswered prayers at least since the time of Twain's writing in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and likely it's been a hot topic throughout all time. If secular culture has an opinion on unanswered prayer, we as a church must have a solid stance so as to not be overtaken by our culture. As I began to reflect and seek the Spirit as to what He might be stirring in me to communicate in regards to unanswered prayer, I went immediately to the patients that I get to walk through suffering with in my office who often has, have prayers in varied states of answer, from unanswered to miracle. Most recently, I thought about a very faithful Christ follower and friend who was so excited, nearing retirement with great plans to kayak and see the world, who had over, overcome cancer 10 to 20 years ago, who had mustered through an ugly and messy divorce to find her true love, we sat in my office about three weeks ago and we mourned 
And we lamented together as I had to break news to her that she had glioblastoma multiforme. It's a very aggressive and terminal brain cancer that has left this once vibrant individual with unexpected seizures, unable to think clearly, and sometimes unable to walk. I think of two sets of married friends, both sets following hard after Jesus, discipled believers longing to be parents, longing to become pregnant after years of infertility and fertility treatments. I reflected on praying with and for our friends, and I reflected on the reality that finally one of the fertility treatments took, and it was twin. To only then sit and weep, no words, just weeping in our living room when they miscarried the twins weeks later. I then reflect that our other set of friends, after years of failed fertility treatment, spontaneously conceived twins and, and, and birthed them, and then a year later miraculously had another surprise. Two close sets of married friends serving and loving the same God, praying the same prayers with drastically different answers and outcomes. I think of a guy that I know pretty well. On September 19th, 2021, he started to have some very bizarre muscular movements in his legs while out on a run. It left him unable to complete a run, such that he had to call his wife about four miles from home and have her come pick him up as he was unable to bear weight. The abnormal muscle movements began to resemble a symptom that is often a presenting symptom in the terminal disease, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. After a two-month break from running, he was able to resume some semblance of running, and neurologists were able to reassure him that his test did not reveal ALS, yet the symptoms continued to persist and spread. Approximately two days after he completed his first marathon in January of 2022, his right side and face went weak and began to droop, and he could not walk in a straight line and kept veering to the right. He was hospitalized with the presumptive diagnosis of new onset multiple sclerosis based on MRI findings at the onset of that hospitalization. Days later, after a spinal tap, MS was ruled out, but the symptoms persisted. Going without solid answers as to why these things were happening, but with solid, visible, unexplained symptoms, his mental health took a tailspin in a dark and dangerous direction, and he battled suicidality in January and February of 2022. He cried out to God. He prayed, screamed, fists against the steering wheel in commute, prostrate on the floor in the shower to God to make him well so that he could appropriately fulfill his responsibilities as a disciple, a husband, father, and a professional. And I know this guy and this story pretty well because I look at him in the mirror every morning. I could go on and on, and I know that you each have your own set of stories and lists of unanswered prayer, failed broken relationships, addictions that keep creeping back, struggling marriages, loneliness, wayward children, childhood cancers, terminal disease, chronic disease states, and maybe you're the main character in that narrative, or maybe you're just a supporting character in that narrative. There is no stratification in the world of disappointment and suffering. It's all just that, disappointment and suffering, and we are all united in this. I empathize with you and I validate wherever you may find yourself in this narrative. I ask myself and I collectively ask us all, how do we sit in these moments? Particularly when we hear these words in Scripture, Matthew 7, 7 through 11, Ask and it will be given you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks the door will be opened. 
In those stories that I told you, there were lots of asking, but not lots of receiving. There were lots of searching, but not a lot of finding. And there were lots of knocking, but no doors were open and the doors remained closed. Or the words that we hear in John chapter 16, verses 23 through 24. So you have pain now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. On that day, you will ask nothing of me. Very truly, I tell you, if you ask anything of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made complete. Are we missing something here? Many people even worry about broaching the subject of unanswered prayer. They worry it toes the line of heresy and brings into question God's sovereignty, God's power, and God's goodness. Many people worry that articulating the wrestling in this space is unbelief. But I argue to you this morning that wrestling with this subject is a form of deep faith. Avoiding the topic leads to bottled up emotion that builds up over pressure over time and often results in an emotional explosion that leads to deconstruction of faith or walking away from faith altogether. Avoiding the wrestling match here would suggest that God can't handle our questions, our doubt, and our disappointment. Suppressing the topic leads to projecting a false self that, to quote Lego movie, everything is awesome, and a false self that on the surface is immune to disappointment, yet deep down, projecting that false self is truly a barrier to deepening relationship with the Father and how He wants to form us in our disappointment and suffering. From the cross, Jesus asked why, and I follow His example in the midst of the cross-bearing life. Why? Today, collectively, we move into night together, into the garden with Jesus and how he instructs us and demonstrates to us how to pray when night falls on our lives and God is silent. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. We'll read verses 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and agitated. Then he said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away for the second time and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And we see the answer to this moment of prayer in Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 and 46. From noon on, darkness came over the whole land 
until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As I read these words, my mind goes back to uh, my, my time growing up in the Bible Belt. This famous picture by artist Heinrich Hoffman. You'll see it behind me. It's probably familiar to a lot of you guys. Perhaps you've seen it hanging in a fellowship hall, or perhaps you saw it, I'm going to kick it old school here, on a church bulletin around Easter time. And something strikes me about it when I read Scripture and when I look at it. It's a great piece of art, but I think it's a little bit not representative of the words that we read in Scripture regarding this Scripture passage. We don't see Jesus agitated and throwing himself on the ground, or as in Luke, Luke's gospel put it, sweating blood. He looks pretty serene and sweatless here. And sometimes I think this is what we all collectively do when prayers go unanswered and when it's uncomfortable in our prayer life. We romanticize things. We paint a little bit of a different picture and try and change the narrative. To cope, we romanticize these tough questions away. And in romanticizing and downplaying the gravity of the situation, we miss out on two opportunities to grow our faith so as to cope with our discomfort in these moments. We're uncomfortable when we see the rawness of humanity, of God in flesh, Jesus. When he's overturning tables in holy anger and lobbying for a house of prayer, and when he's throwing himself on the ground and sweating blood, crying out to his father, we find him in Gethsemane. In Hebrew, it's two words, gat shimanim. And it literally translates oil press. And the Garden of Gethsemane was in a geographic region called the Mount of Olives. And based on an in-depth study of first century olive pressing, gethsemane to produce oil, which was a basic necessity in first century life, we see Christ here being spiritually pressed in Christ in this scriptural passage. He is being pressed, much like the olives were pressed to meet needs. He's being pressed in the Garden of Gethsemane to meet every need we could ever have. Historically, olive pressing was threefold, much like his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane was threefold. The first pressing produced the best quality oil that was offered to God. The second pressing produced good quality oil that was utilized in food, medicine, perfume, and cosmetics. And the third pressing was of lesser quality, but no less important, as it provided the oil for lamps and making soap. This is not the first time we have seen someone mourning in a garden. In Genesis, we found Adam and Eve mourning that they said, unlike Jesus, not your will, but mine be done. We additionally see David literally in this same geographic spot. The Mount of Olives, literally. Same place Jesus is praying in 2 Samuel 15. As he is fleeing and grieving with others the broken relationship between his son Absalom, who has betrayed him and is trying to overthrow his power and take his throne. We see in this story and this prayer the undoing, the great undoing of these garden moments that went wrong. We see the new Adam, Jesus, praying not my will, but thine be done. 
Additionally, this is not the picture of a son betraying his father to overtake his power, but of a son bending his will to the will of his father. Again, an image of a great undoing. Hold the thought of undoing for later. At the start of this series, we set up the framework for prayer. Quick refresher. Keep it simple, keep it real, and keep it up. Here we see Christ's example of keeping it very real and suffering well. He's following the model he demonstrated when instructing his disciples to pray and keeping it simple. He practiced what he preached. There are many parallels to the Lord's Prayer here in this passage, identifying the Father and his place and Jesus' role as his Son. In Mark's account of this instance, in his gospel, Jesus tells the Father again, he, he worships him and says that with, all, with him all things are possible. Then he prays, your will be done. We don't see the, the asking for forgiveness for transgressions component of the Lord's Prayer, yet he, Jesus, is becoming the petition and intercession here. He is becoming forgiveness for transgressions and the ultimate debt forgiveness. And we don't see the petition for daily bread, but he is becoming the broken bread of life, a sacrificed body broken for us that we may have forgiveness of sin. Again, I don't think it's ironic that we see here three separate but similar conversations with the Father. Three oil pressings, if you will, at the oil press Gethsemane. Each time his will is being pressed to align with the will of the Father. I find the first press, the first fruits offered to God in this scriptural moment very significant. It is raw, just as the olives in the first press in olive oil production. It's unrefined, but the source of richest oil. In his first addressing Gethsemane to the Father, he proclaims that if there is any other way to let the cup of judgment for the sin of the world pass by him, his will is expressed. He offers his raw request, his desire. He offers what he doesn't want to happen, and he is expressing this with his mind, his body, and his soul. Here Jesus demonstrates that our spirituality doesn't have to be stoic and that we don't have to triumphantly face suffering and disappointment. Jesus knows what he should do but desperately hopes there's another way for it to be accomplished. He's looking for a way out of the agony, darkness, pain, and disappointment that is coming. Jesus is affirming that our spirituality can express weakness and pain and fear and reluctance and doubt and still be an authentic Christ-like spirituality. Here he demonstrates that a spirituality that suppresses what our true feelings are and substitutes those feelings with what we think we ought to feel is no spirituality at all. It is a mask that bears no resemblance to Christ. But he doesn't leave it there. And that makes all the difference. He continues, yet not what I want, but what you want. We often stop at expressing our will, talking at God. We don't continue the conversation of yielding to His will. Listening and waiting. Each time He returns to the Father, there is less of His personal will present and a continual yielding to the will of the Father. A holy acceptance over time of God's redemptive plan through persistence in prayer. Between each address to heaven, we get a refrain where Jesus goes to find His disciples for support. And what are they doing? Let's pause here, especially for those of you who might be asleep. (laughs) Time to wake up. It's been heavy. Take a break. Take a breather there. We can find ourselves all over this story. If we aren't traversing the sorrow and disappointment of unanswered prayer as Jesus is here, we will eventually. 
In this world, you will have trouble. Not might have trouble, will have trouble. Not if, but when. Or we are close to someone who is in the woes of unanswered prayer. We can learn how not to walk through that with others by a quick look to Peter, James, and John here. Can you keep watch and pray for those close to you who are walking through the suffering and disappointment of unanswered prayer? He kept it simple. He kept it real. He kept it up. He demonstrates the way of prayer in the midst of disappointment is persistence as he returns to prayer twice after his first in the passage. He exhibits what Paul outlines in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, unceasing prayer. He shows us that to suffer well, we have to not only keep it real, but keep it up. Prayer necessitates perseverance and persistence. If all prayers were immediately answered, there would be no incentive to persist in prayer. He goes back a second and third time before his betrayer arrives on the scene. We see him again, keeping it simple, keeping it real, and keeping it up. There must be something to this. First major point today. Even Jesus had to live and endure the tension of unanswered prayer. Tim Keller says, Though Christianity does not provide the reason for each experience of pain, it provides deep resources for actually facing suffering with hope and courage rather than bitterness and despair. We can find comfort here. In Christ's high priestly prayer or farewell prayer in John 17, Jesus prayed for all who believe in verse 21 that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. A holy unity that doesn't yet exist unless I'm missing something. An unanswered prayer of Jesus, much like in Gethsemane. He, he prayed that this cup would pass from him. He prayed for a change of plans, if that were a possibility. And we know this didn't come to pass as he drank the cup on the cross. He felt forsaken from the cross and he literally shouted what he felt to heaven. Again, in the discomfort of Jesus' humanity, many like to indicate that Jesus is reciting psalms here. But Jesus kept it real. He might very well be reciting a psalm, but he is citing it because he feels it and feels it deeply. He's not scripturing away his truest feelings. He felt the silence from heaven. Although he felt forsaken, he did not die renouncing God. He continued to cry out to God in a possessive way as a child using the word my. I don't know about your children, but I'm pretty sure that was each of mine's first word. My, mine, my, my God, my God. By using the word my, he is saying, you are still my God, possessive. Though they literally slay me, you are still my God. Though I'm struggling in your silence, you are still my God. Though I'm drinking the cup of judgment that I petitioned to let pass from me, you are still my God. Though I'm in the darkest place of my life, I will rest in knowing that you are mine and I am yours even when you are silent. He is still using intimate language as he expresses great pain and subsequently infinite and cosmic separation and abandonment. When we look at the cross and ask the question, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue? We might never know what that answer is this side of eternity. But we know what the answer isn't. It can't be that He doesn't love us. It can't be that He is indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so serious that He was willing to take it on Himself. No other major world religion has a deity who identifies with us in our suffering and in our disappointment. You will find this nowhere else. Literally, God with us in our triumphs and joy, God with us in our sorrow and disappointment. This is God demonstrating how to suffer well 
a suffering that helps enrich joy. My second point, if your faith is contingent upon how and whom God responds to your prayer, that is no faith at all. That is cosmic ATM theology. It's the theology of Aladdin. Rub the lamp, make the wish, put the right input to get the expected output. This is at its root, transactional. We are, intera- we are interacting with a relational God. There is no relationship in a transaction. Has anybody ever bragged to you about their relationship they have with their ATM? Treating God like a well-intentioned genie. Many people want to deposit their good deeds, their self-righteousness, their expectations, and sense of entitlement with the assured hope of an immediate return on investment, if you will, plus interest on their next withdrawal on their timeline. They like things that if you put the right things on the left side of the equation, you'll at least have a balanced equation on the right. If every request we made to God was immediately answered in a way that aligned with our expectations and our timeline, which is usually now or yesterday in our instant gratification culture, what room would there be in our lives for faith or hope for that matter? A prayer life that would wait answered prayer more on on faith in our asking than faith in God to deliver what he knows to be best. Dr. Jerry Sitzer says this in his book, When God Doesn't Answer Your Prayers. Is the purpose of prayer to receive what we ask for? Well, yes and no. God wants to answer our prayers, but God wants us to know Him too. If anything, that's God's best answer to prayer. Persistence leads to a more mature prayer life. We will begin to see God as worthy of our greatest love and affection, as if a relationship with God were the goal of our prayers, and not merely the acquisition of things we want from God. We will stop talking all the time, and we will learn to listen. An answer to prayer that aligns with our timeline and expectations is a grace. God owes us no answers, but in His mercy chooses to answer us in ways we can comprehend sometimes. Miracles are the exception, not the rule. We must learn how to live in the rule and be surprised by the exceptions. But for the most part, we expect to live in the exception rather than the rule. My third point today, silence does not imply absence. We always want to associate silence with absence or non-existence for that matter. With God, silence is never absence as it is not in the character of God to ever be absent as He is omnipresent, everywhere present, both in space and time. And what is not in the character of God simply does not exist with Him. God's absence is non-existent. He is ever-present. You have heard me, if you've heard me speak before, you've heard me make reference to C.S. Lewis, who I would consider one of my dead mentors. He was very much acquainted with unanswered prayer as his mother died of cancer in 1908 when he was only nine years old. Biographers believe that this set in motion his atheism. After coming to Christ later and breaking out of atheism, he met and married his wife, Joy, who was diagnosed with cancer and died four years after their marriage. Clearly, someone who knew pain and disappointment of unanswered prayer. Walking through the disappointment of the loss of his mother, we see these moments reflected in book one of his Chronicles of Narnia, The Magician's Nephew. The young protagonist, Diggory, is a young boy whose mother is ill and dying. Spoiler alert. He goes to Aslan the lion, who in Lewis's allegory represents God and asks for magic fruit to make his mother well. I'm going to read a passage from the book. 
He was desperately hoping that the lion would say yes. He had been horribly afraid that it might say no. But he was taken aback when it said neither. Now, an aside, anybody with Diggory here, a yes with a miracle or a clear no would at least let us know that God had heard us. Then Diggory goes on to ask another passage. He thought of his mother and he thought of the great hopes he had and how they were all dying away and a lump came in his throat and tears in his eyes and he blurted out, but please, please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure mother? Up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in despair, he looked up at its face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own And wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorry about his mother that he was himself. Perhaps in the stillness of your disappointment and the tension of the unanswered prayer, we need to lift our downtrodden eyes up. And realize that albeit silent, perhaps his face is filled with tears much like ours is. And that he is there and present in our disappointment and our suffering. My final point. Lean into the divine mystery. And come to appreciate the tension that exists between joy and sorrow. While we sit in the tension of the now and the not yet. God does not always and immediately bend to our incessant need for instant answers to satisfy our discomfort as we sit in the tension of the now and the not yet. There's much to be learned and appreciated in the tug of war between disappointment and sorrow and joy. My family loves the movie Inside Out. Uh, Psychologists and experts on human emotion were consulted for this film. Dr. Keltner was from UC Berkeley and Paul Ekman was from UCSF. And they nailed it. Joy always wants to be in control and put sadness on the back burner and ignore sadness. And in this film, we see what happens when we neglect sadness, sorrow, and disappointment. Joy is devalued, cheapened, and more temporary and fleeting and harder to recognize. When we lean into our sorrow and disappointment, and more importantly, into our suffering servant, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, we can more easily recognize joy and experience a more lasting joy. When he lives in us and we lean into his presence, the fruit of joy may grow despite our circumstances. Perhaps in avoiding the topic of our unanswered prayer, we're missing the relational joy with the God of the universe who is big enough to hold us and our doubt and our disappointment if we will just take it into his embrace. Earlier, I told you to hold on to the concept of undoing. There is beautiful scripture that reassures us that if our prayers go and remain unanswered in our lifetime, there will be a great undoing. Just as there was a great undoing in Gethsemane, wrongs will be righted. Prayers will be ultimately answered when there's a new heaven and a new earth. At the culmination of time, in Revelation chapter 8, we see in verses 3 and 4, we see that every prayer that's offered by the saints is kept in a reservoir in front of the throne. So our prayers don't just hit the ceiling and drop down, 
drop back down into our minds and our hearts. But they sit in a reservoir waiting for the culmination of time in front of the throne. And moving further into that great undoing at the culmination of time, just let this scripture from Revelation 21 verses 1 through 5 wash over you. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be His peoples, and God Himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the, the first things have passed away. And, to the, and the one who was seated on the throne then said, See, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. The future is not an immaterial paradise in which we float on clouds in the buff playing harps and singing for eternity. For some of you, that may define eternal torment. It's a new heaven and a new earth. We aren't taken out of this world into heaven, but heaven is coming down and cleansing, renewing, redeeming, and perfecting this material world. The biblical view of things is resurrection, not a future that is just a consolation for the life we never had, but a restoration of the life you always wanted. This means that every horrible thing that ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but will in some way make the eventual glory and joy even greater. So as to end with hope, I want to follow up on my couple of friends who miscarried twins. Two weeks after the loss, they got an unexpected phone call in regards to a mother struggling with addiction who wanted to give up her baby for adoption. She wanted to meet our friends, and they set up a time and place to meet her, and she did not show up to the meeting, unfortunately. So disappointment deepened. A few Sundays later, sitting in a church service, they were sitting right next to us. Another unexpected phone call came that she was in labor and despite not meeting them, she still wanted them to be her baby's parents. They made it in time to the hospital to cut the cord. So through the ashes of years of unanswered prayer, something unforeseen was born. Two unspoken prayers were answered simultaneously. A mother battling addiction, her prayer for loving parents to adopt her child, and a husband and wife who were in the woes of infertility were made parents. I do not know the prayers of the baby's mother, but I imagine that she at some point prayed that she would not conceive. We prayed ardently with our friends that they would conceive and have a baby, and both of those prayers went unanswered. Prayers that we did not know to pray and the limitations of our knowledge, rationale, and imagination were answered. I will remind you, as I've said in past sermons, the Holy Spirit knows what we need to pray when we don't have the words. As far as my patient battling glioblastoma multiforme, their spouse updated me this week that the tumors are shrinking somewhat, symptoms are improving somewhat, and despite their disappointment and terminal suffering, they choose to end the update with, praise God. 
They've made the tough choice to suffer well, to choose to believe through lack of understanding, to persist in asking the cup of suffering to be taken from them, but not their will, but his be done. To choose to persist in prayer and yield to the will of God, even if that means succumbing to a terrible, terrible disease process. As far as my story, I wish I could say that the strange neurologic symptoms were completely gone and a miracle occurred in regards to those. They have improved. After one and a half years of being unable to exercise, I've been able to exercise again since June. I wish I could say that I had solid answers as to why these things happen and persist, but I can't. Despite visits with the U.S.'s most prestigious experts on my symptoms, I can only speak of the miracles that have sprouted up around the unanswered prayer. I can firmly proclaim that I've been a better husband and father having to go through the times of uncertainty and ponder the mortality of possible terminal disease states. I have moved to follow Jesus more closely than I ever have in my entire life, and my relationship with Him is more real than it ever has been. As there were moments, and there will continue to be moments in my life when He will feel like the only thing I have and my divine self. Although there are terrible days, I feel Christ's suffering empathizing with me on the bad days. The change that has been wrought in me through suffering over the past two years has had a trickle-down effect that I fortunately had the grace to see. I like to think that out of my suffering and our suffering as a family, as a trickle-down, as a result, has led us to hold each other a little closer and have deeper, more spiritually directed conversation. Salvation has visited our house not once, but twice in my daughter's since this started. And I'm confident that God used the growth in us to prepare us for moments such as these. Today, my second daughter who decided to follow Jesus in June will be baptized. My eldest accepted Jesus last year and was baptized near Easter. So in closing, try and dry it up here, sorry. I want to tell you a story of a king that had two sons. One of those kings he was very, 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 very close to. And one, his relationship with him was transactional. The son just wanted a handout, some money, stuff, things. He didn't really want a relationship with the father anymore. And the father was very, very quick to just hand him whatever he wanted just to get him out of his presence because they had no relationship. But the other son, who he's very, 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 very close to, when he would ask for things or request things, he wouldn't immediately answer and wouldn't immediately give him what he wanted because he just wanted him to come a little closer. He just wanted him to walk a little farther into the throne room to be with him. And so my invitation to you today is that perhaps that's why you're sitting in the tension. Perhaps that's why you're sitting in the tension of unanswered prayer. Perhaps he's not immediately giving you what you want in a transaction because he loves you. And he wants you to come just a little bit closer. So my invitation to you today is answer that. Come into the throne room. Come a little closer. And be with him. Even if he's silent. I will stick around between baptism, I'd love to pray with you. Perhaps suffering or unanswered prayer are why, are what are, are keeping you away from God. 
but I would love to help you break through that. I will hang around. I know our prayer team will be close by. Love to pray with you through that. Love to pray with you and be with you while you're in agony, much like Peter, James, and John, but we won't fall asleep on you. We will pray with you. So pray with me today. Father, it has been a tough place to be in your house today. But God, we know that you're in the tough moments just as much as you are in the joyous moments of life. And you're the one who holds that tension in the balance, Lord. I pray if there's someone in here who is sitting in that tension that they would be able to not sit there alone. Not only do I pray that they would feel you near, but I pray that you would utilize us to be near to them where they're at. God, I pray if someone doesn't know you and the barrier that stands between you is their disappointment in unanswered prayer or their disappointment in suffering, I pray that we can break through that today so that they can feel your embrace, the embrace of the eternal Heavenly Father. God, we give you today, we give you our time, and we're so thankful for Jesus. We're so thankful that he went through the garden moment. He went to the cross. He experienced your silence. But we thank you for the resurrection, and we thank you in advance for the resurrection of all things at the culmination of time. And it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.